Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading. My name is Renee Manderville, and I'm the, a project manager at the Indian Ocean World Center, or IOWC, at McGill University. I'm joined by Philip Gooding, a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Center. Hi, Philip. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Uh, you will hear more from me with some questions towards the end of this podcast. Our guest today is Archisman Chowdhury, another postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Center. He received his PhD at Leiden University in the Netherlands in 2019 with a thesis entitled From Camp to Port, Yugal Warfare and the Economy of Coromandel, 1682 to 1710. He has been working as a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Center since 2019. At present, he is researching droughts in the 17th century Indian Ocean world by comparing cases from South Asia with islands in Southeast Asia. He is a managing editor of the Journal of, His of Indian Ocean World Studies and an editor of the Indian Ocean World Center working paper series. Today, he is going to discuss some findings from two chapters of his doctoral thesis, which, based on a study of the VOC or Dutch East Indian Company archives, have engaged with the idea of a 17th century general crisis stemming from climactic anomalies and politico-economic calamities during the Little Ice Age in the context of South Asia. Archisman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Reni, for having me here. So I just have a few questions to start off, and I'll list them out before you delve further into your research. So firstly, could you just give us a brief overview of what you will be discussing today? Um, what is your doctoral thesis about, and how is it related to your use of the VOC archives? What was the 17th century general crisis, and how did your thesis engage with the idea of a general crisis in the context of South Asia? Thank you. Broadly speaking, my doctoral thesis has studied the relationship between warfare and economy in early modern South Asia. From 1500 to 1700, in a time when European powers were colonizing the Americas, large imperial states uh, dotted the rim of the Indian Ocean world from Turkey to South Asia. For example, the Ottomans in Turkey, the Safavids in Persia, and the Mughals in South Asia all successfully connected the heartland of their territories with the booming coasts that acted as channels of Indian Ocean commerce. Except uh, occasional naval violence within these empires, European maritime powers mainly restricted themselves to trade and profited from the imperial infrastructure that connected the hinterland with the coasts. My doctoral thesis has researched the economic impact of the Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb's southern campaigns, which lasted from 1682 to 1707 in Kormandu. During his southern campaigns, as I call them, Aurangzeb conquered the sultanates of Bijapur and Golconda, but he had limited success against his major adversary, the Maratha kingdom. Beginning from the west of the Deccan, Aurangzeb's military campaigns moved southeast towards the Kormandu coast, which was a major manufacturing and commercial hub of the early modern Indian Ocean world. The Dutch East India Company, or the VOC, as I would be referring to them through this podcast, 
had a huge business network from Amsterdam to Nagasaki in Japan. And for them, Coromandel was a crucial component in the intra-Asian trade. Uh, textiles from Coromandel were used to procure spices in Southeast Asia. The VOC had extensive commercial stakes in Coromandel and their archival records are a wonderful window to research climatic and political economic developments in the region. Now, when it comes to the idea of a global crisis in the 17th century, it's based on an interplay of environmental, socioeconomic, and political military factors. Uh, part of the little ice age that roughly lasted from the early 1300s to the early 1800s, a decline in solar activity and temperatures across the Northern Hemisphere triggered a chain reaction leading to reduced rainfall, crop failures, depopulation, and even political turmoil, rebellions, or wars in the 17th century. Initially, this was a theme central to the study of European history, but this idea was examined in the context of Asia with contributions from John F. Richards, Anthony Reed, and William Atwell in Geoffrey Parker and Leslie Smith's co-edited collection of essays entitled The General Crisis of the 17th Century, which was reprinted in 1997. Geoffrey Parker's recent study of the global crisis in the 17th century suggests that the ability or otherwise of communities to immunize themselves against weather-induced challenges determined the impact of environmental shifts. For South Asia, especially within the Mughal Empire, John F. Richards has considerably modified the idea of a 17th century crisis. Although our general crisis seems to have occurred in the first half of the 17th century in several parts of the world, Richards argued that symptoms pointing to a general crisis are hardly apparent in the Indian subcontinent for the greater part of the 17th century. Instead, it was a period of moderate but steady growth in population and rising productivity. Signs of economic distress, too, are difficult to detect. Only, Richards argued that only towards the end of the 17th century and the beginning of the 18th century, political crisis, warfare, disease, and economic disruption accompanied Mughal imperial decline. My doctoral thesis, which is based on unpublished VOC archival documents, explored the idea of a 17th century political, economic, and climatic crisis in South Asia in some of its sections. In this context, I mainly talk about the coast of Coromandel, where I argue that despite the looming threat of a protracted war and economic reorientation in the aftermath of Mughal conquests, it's difficult to argue in favor of an acute general crisis, even with regard to climatic anomalies like failure of rains. Evidence from the VOC archives points out that the picture is far from uniform in late 17th century Coromandel. Mm, wow, thank you for that, Archisman. Um, so might I ask how you build up this argument? Um, I argue that we should pay more attention to the heterogeneities within Coromandel to understand 
how the literal reacted to climatic anomalies and political economic crisis. Firstly, the Coromandel Coast experiences two monsoons, one from June to August, when it receives comparatively less rainfall, and two from October to December, which is its main rainy and cropping season. Thanks to two monsoons and a long coastline, a complete failure of crops was a rare phenomenon in Coromandel, which means rice could be transported from surplus to deficit areas, especially from the Kaveri Delta in southern Coromandel, which was usually a rice surplus region. And it remained so even during Aurangzeb's southern campaigns when there was greater pressure on cultivation due to the presence of marching armies and raids for supplies. Secondly, Northern and Southern Coromandel experienced the major thrust of Mughal military campaigns at different junctures. And accordingly, the intensity of impact was different too. In Northern Coromandel, the Mughal conquest of the Golconda Sultanate in 1687 had coincided with a severe El Nino event, 16, which lasted from 1686 to 1688. It was marked by a failure of the monsoon, which led to a famine uh, that was caused both by harvest failure and Mughal invasion that, uh, that made uh, cropping and cultivation difficult. It was followed by an epidemic and a, severe, and a serious depopulation in the region. All of this had a devastating effect on Masulipatnam, which was a major port city in 17th century Bay of Bengal. And it connected the textile industry of Northern Coromandel with the markets of mainland Southeast Asia and islands in Southeast Asia. As we find from the VOC correspondence, recovery in Northern Coromandel was really slow and it began only in the 1690s. On the other hand, if we look uh, at the picture further south, in Central Coromandel, uh, the major intensity of Mughal campaigns was felt during the 1690s when the Mughals besieged the fort of Jinji for almost a decade from 1689 to 1698. About the same time, the Mughals raided the Kaveri Delta to procure supplies on three occasions in 1691, 1694, and 1697. In fact, around the 1690s, the VOC contrasted the relatively peaceful conditions for trade in Northern Coromandel with the disturbances that had been unleashed in Central and Southern Coromandel. Thirdly and most importantly, records on climatic anomalies in late 17th century Coromandel, as are evidenced by the VOC archives, point out the differences in Northern and Southern Coromandel in terms of food security. To begin with, uh, during the 1686-1688 El Nino, as a result of droughts and famine, hundreds of people had sold themselves off as slaves to the VOC, who shipped them to Southeast Asia. But at the same time, the VOC observed that people entering bondage were less in number in Southern Coromandel compared to the North. This was possible due to greater food security in Southern Coromandel, which was a result 
of the region's good rice harvests. This attracted rivers from the north to settle in the villages of the Kaveri Delta. And in fact, we find uh, this phenomenon already uh, by the mid 1690s. Uh, in the 1690s and early 1700s, the years of poor rainfall in northern Coromandel do not coincide with the years of poor rainfall in southern Coromandel. For example, in northern Coromandel, the monsoon was really bad in 1693 and 95, and 1695, I beg your pardon, while in southern Coromandel, the rainfall was really bad in 1698, 1705, and 1708. If we look at agriculture in northern Coromandel during the 1690s, as the Mughal administration established links with the fertile parts of the region, agriculture recovered from the initial destabilizing impact of Mughal conquest. However, whenever monsoon was poor, for example, in 1695, merchants from northern Coromandel procured rice from the Kaveri Delta in southern Coromandel. Apart from this, a brisk coastal trade in rice and other edible goods from Bengal and Orissa in eastern India was a typical feature of Coromandel ports throughout the 17th century. And this also helped northern Coromandel tide over low food security. When it comes to southern Coromandel, despite the three cases of poor monsoons, for example, 1698, 1705, and 1708, ports in southern Coromandel continued to supply rice to the north, as well as private traders from southern Coromandel kept up rice trade to Sri Lanka, and the VOC too continued their shipments of rice to their garrisons in Sri Lanka. Never did the VOC report a famine or depopulation caused by monsoon failure in southern Coromandel during the 1690s and early 1700s. Although there was a flood in 1707 which destroyed standing crops, the VOC did not report of a famine in the region. The only instance when they report of a serious depopulation in southern Coromandel was 1710, when lands could not be cultivated due to a rebellion in the area of Tanjore and because of migration and death of peasants. So despite accounting for a reduction in cropping area due to movement of troops, as it had happened, particularly in northern Coromandel after 1700 due to Maratha raids and poor Mughal management of the region, and occasional failure of monsoon in the 1690s and 1700s, it is difficult to argue in favor of a general climatic crisis in Coromandel in the late 17th century and early 18th century. The differences between northern and southern Coromandel in terms of food security or the lack of it, which was caused by climatic anomalies and warfare, had an impact on the political economy of the region. I argue that better food security in southern Coromandel caused by rice harvests compared to northern Coromandel attracted weavers and merchants to move south from the north during Aurangzeb's southern campaigns. This eventually led to a major economic reorientation, the relative rise of the port cities of southern Coromandel.
Wow, uh, that's all very extremely interesting information. Um, the interplay between the environment and human movements is incredibly apparent. Um, I see how you've nuanced the idea of a climactic crisis in the context of South Asia. Um, so one more question before I leave it to Philip to complete this question and answer period. Would you say that Southern Coromandel was more immune to climate-induced challenges than Northern Coromandel? Um, partly, yes. Traditionally, Southern Coromandel has been regarded as the granary of the littoral due to its good rice harvests. Uh, despite three bad monsoons, no famine occurred in the region caused by the shortage of rice in the late 17th century and early 18th century. This is all the more remarkable because both in Northern and Southern Coromandel, as the VOC repeatedly complained, rice prices remained high, which made weavers in turn ask for higher wages. Geoffrey Parker recent study of global crisis in the 17th century argues that wars can create artificial scarcity even in a year of good harvest. While Aurangzeb's southern campaigns did create an inflation in grain prices, my argument is that did not lead to a serious artificial scarcity of rice in southern Coromandel, despite a few bad monsoons. Thank you, Archisman. Uh, your argument of a reorientation and or a transformation in Coromandel's economy resulting from warfare and differences in food security is certainly intriguing. I wonder, does this southward shift continue to, during the 18th century as well? Um, thus, how do you place your arguments on war and food security induced migration in relation to other studies on Coromandel? Uh, thank you, Philip. To a certain extent, yes. My findings resonate with another study by President Parthasarathy uh, entitled uh, The Transition to a Colonial Economy, Weavers, Merchants and Kings in South India. Parthasarathy argues that by the end of the 18th century, the majority of textile weaving centers in Coromandel were located around the ports of central and southern Coromandel. While textiles were still produced in northern Coromandel, Parthasarathy argues that the volume of cotton trade, which moved from the cotton growing regions of the Deccan to central and southern Coromandel was greater than its northern Coromandel counterpart. This tells us that merchants in southern and central Coromandel controlled the bulk of Coromandel's famous textile trade by the late 1700s. Although I concede that there is a gap of almost a century uh, in the evidence which I prefer and in the evidence that Parthasarathy uh, cites from, it is likely that Southern Coromandel could attract weavers and merchants throughout the 18th century's political reshuffling, mainly because of its greater food security. That said, this is an idea I'm keen to research and interrogate more thoroughly against the backdrop of records of monsoon, political reshuffling, and warfare in 18th century Southern India. It would be too early to jump to the conclusion that the transformation which Parthasarathy has discussed begins to take shape in the period that I have studied. All right then, so, uh... 
building on this, what do you think could be the wide implications of your research for history, for the history of the, uh, the Indian Ocean world, especially in terms of researching climatic uh, and or environmental developments? Um, firstly, although my research has merely touched the tip of the iceberg, I think it tells us there is a huge potential of exploring the VOC archives for writing different histories of the Indian Ocean world. In this regard, I could also point to the impressive work of the late Peter Baumgart or Peter Baumgart, who had also used the VOC archives to research cases of droughts, famines, and diseases in islands of Southeast Asia in the 17th century. I can only hope that I have made a fruitful start. Um, secondly, I think we have to be careful when we talk about climatic crisis over a large region, because as I have argued in the case of Coromandel, it is extremely difficult and tricky to speak of a region as a whole. The impact of climatic anomalies could be and were different across a large region. Such an approach, I believe, might offer interesting results when we study the longer durée impact of a rather high frequency of El Nino events, to be precise, 18 El Nino events during the coldest span of the Little Ice Age, which lasted from 1570s to 1720s across the Indian Ocean world. And also, we could follow uh, this approach for studying the next uh, period of serious climatic crisis in the region, which lasted from 1780s to 1820s. Okay. Thank you for your answers to our questions. And thank you so much for joining us today, Archisman. Uh, we look forward to hearing more about your fascinating research on South and South Southeast Asia in future podcasts. Thank you to Philip for his additional questions. And of course, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. Once again, my name is Renee Manderville and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. The Indian Ocean World Podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.